two kings at the moment at church. I do hope that you've been enjoying our series. A couple of weeks ago, we went through one chapter. Last week, we went through two chapters of two kings. This week, we've got three chapters ahead of us. So please do keep your Bibles open. We'll be flicking through a big chunk of two kings tonight. But we'll start with this. What's the easiest question that you've ever had to answer? The easiest question. Now, for me, it'd be something on the lines of, you're at a pub, you're ordering food, and someone asks you that question. Would you like a side of salad or chips? <laughs> Always hot chips, thank you very much. That's a very easy question. Or it could be something along the lines of those icebreaker games that we play. Those would-you-rather questions at the very beginning of the year in gospel teams. Those would-you-rather-live-at-the-beach or the mountains or the snow or space. Beach, always beach. Would you rather live at the beach? Yes, I would. But I reckon the easiest question to answer actually comes jumping out of our passage here in 2 Kings 8 all the way through to the end of 10. Because we have two stories here. And they're put next to each other so we can see the extent of God's grace as it's compared to God's judgment. Which would you choose? And it should really make us long for the blessings of God's grace more and more. And it should make us look at the judgment of God with dread. Those are the two options here in our passage. So let's jump straight in and look at option one. This is under our first heading here. God's grace turns curses into blessing. And what we have here in this first section is the equivalent of a modern-day flashback. In like a movie or a TV show that you're watching, a mystery is made known. Or a pivotal piece of information is given to you, and then everything else is put into perspective. This flashback goes back to God's grace so that we puts God's judgment in perspective when we see it next. And we flash back to the Shumanite woman. And we met her in chapter 4 of 2 Kings. She's one of the very few Israelites who cared for and obeyed God. But remember... She couldn't have children. An Israelite woman who was unable to have a child. That should be ringing alarm bells in our heads. That's a covenant curse. God's covenant with the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy says that if the nation of Israel obeys God, the fruit of your womb will be blessed. Everyone will be having heaps and heaps of kids. But if the nation of Israel disobeys God, turns from him, the fruit of your womb will be cursed. Barrenness will be widespread throughout the nation of Israel. And so, in a nation full of disobedience, we find a wonderfully obedient woman, but she's still under the curse. So the man of God, Elijah, he tells this woman, you're going to have a son. You'll receive God's blessing. And that comes to pass. She is blessed. But then, not too long after, that boy dies. And again, death is a big covenant curse. God had put before the Israelites life and death. Obey and you'll live and you'll have it in abundance. Disobey and there'll be death in abundance. So what does God do in this situation? Well, he uses Elijah to resurrect the child, to give him life again. And this obedient woman, even though she's amongst a cursed people, God keeps turning Curses into blessing, curses into blessing. This woman, she is blessed. Look at 
the abundant grace of God to one obedient woman, even when she's surrounded by God's judgment. So in chapter 4, we see grace. Now, if we were to put our story in chapter 8 straight back into chapter 4, it would round out this story of the Shumanite woman. But we have it here in chapter 8 as a flashback because it's the exclamation point to God's grace to this woman who obeys and loves the Lord. Look down with me at verse 1 of chapter 8. Verse 1 says, Elijah said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Get ready, you and your household, and go. Go and live as a foreigner wherever you can. For the Lord has announced a seven-year famine, and it has already come on the land. Okay, third time's a charm. Covenant curses to be aware of. Barrenness, death, and famine. That's where we're at. The third covenant curse that is coming upon the people of Israel. And Elijah is telling this obedient woman, a covenant curse is coming. Plenty of people are going to suffer and die. But you, you, get your whole family, get your household, get your bond servants and go. Escape the judgment and live in a foreign land. To obey the man of God's command is blessing. He is commanding her to escape judgment. And so, verse 2, the woman got ready and did what the man of God said. She went, and she went southwest. We've got a map for you. The Shumanite woman is from Shuman, which is where that little red dot up the top of the northern kingdom of Israel just a bit southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And she went from there, if we go to the next slide, down to Philistine, right? She's outside of the country of Israel. That's where the judgment's happening, and she's outside of it. And she's there for seven years. Seven years goes by in one sentence. Look with me at verse 3. The woman then returns from the land of the Philistines at the end of the seven years, and she went to appeal to the king for her house and field. So she starts heading back, and she goes back to Samaria. That's where the king resides on her way back to Shuman. And it's here that we get to see two new characters in this flashback. We see Gehazi speaking to the king. Now remember, this flashback is before Gehazi and the Naaman story where he became a leper because lepers can't be able to speak and be close to the king. But this king... He wants to know about all that Elijah, the man of God, is doing. So Gehazi is telling him, and he retells the story of this woman, this barren woman who got a son, this barren woman who lost her son, this barren woman who then regained her son. And it's at this time that this Shumanite woman stumbles through those doors to meet with the king. Now the king in this flashback is not named, but we assume it's Joram, But this king is then told by the very woman who received all these blessings, all that the prophet had said, and all the blessings that she'd received from God, which is a big testimony to God's grace to his people. To the God whom the Israelite kings keep rejecting. And the king's response isn't repentance and humility. No, The king's response is, wow, 
Cool story. Here, have your income and your land back. And while this is yet another blessing on the Shumanite woman, it's another indictment on the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. Face to face with someone who is blessed beyond abundantly, who is a living, breathing testimony to God's grace, yet they themselves fail to turn to the same gracious God and repent. We're meant to see here how wonderful it is to obey God. Look at this Shumanite woman. Do you know just how blessed you are if you obey the Almighty God? I really do want you to hear that tonight. It is wonderful, wonderful to obey God. And this nameless woman is a great example to all of us. This obedient woman is blessed by God's grace. Yet, if we were to stand in her shoes, it would be very easy to see that she went through plenty of suffering. She was barren. She wanted to have children, but she couldn't. A life with constant shame, stigma. Later on, she lost the very child that she longed for. And there is no getting around just how horrible the suffering is of losing a child. She was then just told to up and leave her home for seven years. She lost her house and all her possessions. That's 2,555 days. If you were to get evicted this Christmas, you wouldn't be able to come back to your house until 2030. But even in this life of suffering, this is the obedient woman who God blessed abundantly. Because being counted as blessed doesn't mean she's void of suffering. God's grace isn't a painkiller for her. But when you compare, when you look at her life in perspective, the pain and the grace, the grace of God swallows up everything in wonderful blessing. Her life with the gracious God is not a painkiller, but it's an eternal and wonderful healing. God's grace towards those who love and obey him is wonderful. It is wonderful to obey God, for he is overflowing with grace. Okay, but when this flashback finishes, how does it actually position us to understand the next part of this narrative? Well, let's look at our second point tonight. This is the man of God over all, of his, all nations, and judgment is coming. Let's look at verses 7 through to 15. And this is when Elisha came to Damascus. That's where the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, is, and he's very sick. So Elijah leaves Israel and ends up in Damascus. The man of God goes to a Gentile nation. This should feel strange. Why is he doing this? But then we're introduced to Hazael. Oh, there he is. Now, we haven't met Hazael before, but God has already made mysterious promises about this Hazael. Back in 1 Kings 19, God promised to Elijah, in light of the worst, most evil king Ahab, that Hazael will be king of Aram, that Jehu will be king of Israel, and we'll meet him later on in our passage, and Elisha will be the prophet. And these three men, God is going to use to bring judgment on the house of Ahab, the evil king, a foreign king, an Israelite king, and a man of God. And what's the judgment that's going to occur on the house of Ahab? 
Well, 1 Kings 19 says this, Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword from Hazael, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword from Jehu. And from there on, no mention of Jehu or Hazael until 2 Kings 8. We are about to see the judgment brought down on the house of Ahab. But that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Let's actually then look at our passage in verse 8. Verse 8 says this. So the king said to Hazael, Take a gift and go and meet the man of God. Inquire of the Lord through him, Will I recover from this sickness? So then, after, we, after this, we see a private conversation between Elisha and Hazael. And it's a weird one, right? Hazael asks, Will King Ben-Hadad actually recover? And Elisha already is planning on sending him back, knowing full well his murderous intentions. Go and say to him, you're sure to recover, but the Lord knows what you're going to do. And then we get a long stare down. A really long stare down. So Elijah, Elijah, the man of God, knows exactly what Hazael is planning on doing, and rightly so, Hazael feels ashamed. But, then Elisha is the one who starts weeping. What's going on here? In verse 12, Hazael finds that strange. A strong, knowing stare. And then Elisha starts breaking down and weeping. That's odd. But it's here that we get the graphic picture of a small measurement of the wrath of God. And it is uncomfortable to read. But this shows us the measurement of sin. This is the right consequences for the sin of Ahab and his people declared by a perfect judge. Elisha replied in verse 12 to why are you weeping? Look with me, verse 12. Because I know the evil you will do to the people of Israel. You will set their fortresses on fire. You will kill their young men with the sword. You will dash their little ones to pieces. You will rip open their pregnant women. No one should feel comfortable reading that. Hazael, who's already planning to murder his own king, responds by saying, how could I do such a monstrous thing? He's disgusted by the thought. Yet this will play out exactly as the Lord has said. In the chaos and horror of war, these things happen by Hazael's men, his orders, his army. Those who had followed Ahab and served the Baals will experience this judgment. Those Israelites who had turned from the holy and awesome God, this is their lot. And so after this private conversation, what does Hazael do? Verse 14, Hazael left Elisha, went to his master, that's King Ben-Hadad, who asked him, what did Elijah say? And he responded, he told me you're sure to recover. But then the next day, Hazael took a heavy cloth, dipped it in water, and then spread it on the king's face. And Ben-Hadad died, and Hazael reigned instead of him. The Lord is not just over the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, but God is the one who is over every nation, even their enemies. And Israel was so wrong in forsaking this almighty God. 
So that leads us to our third point tonight, which is we're going to be looking at Jehu, who's going to be the king that brings God's judgment. And this is where we really start to race through these next couple of chapters. It's a huge story of judgment, and this is remembered, oh, sorry, this is meant to be compared to the Shumanite woman's testimony of grace. Look how gracious God is. Look how wonderful it is to obey God. Look at those curses being removed and those blessings being established. Compare that to what disobedience and turning from God equates to. Because after verses 7 through 15, the scope of the story really widens up and we meet that other really important character, Jehu, from 1 Kings 19. Now, Jehu is a commander in Israel's army. And Jehu's story starts off almost as weirdly as Elisha's chat with, ha- with Hazael. So Elisha gives instructions to a son of the prophets, and he tells him to go and find Jehu. Get him away from the other commanders of the army. Get him alone so it's just you and him. Then, look with me down at verse 3 of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 3. Then, take the flask of oil pour it on his head, say, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel, then open the door and escape, don't wait. A surprise anointing for the next king of Israel. That's pretty weird. But that's because it's not going to be continuing in Ahab's line. And this is the summary sort of message of what Elisha has given to this prophet. Uh, We get a fuller one when he actually goes through with the actual anointing. So, Let's follow it through. The servant takes the message, goes off, finds Jehu, pulls him aside from all the other manly commanders. And so verse 6, read with me. The young prophet poured oil on his head and said, This is what the Lord God of Israel says, I anoint you, king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to strike down the house of your master Ahab, so that I may avenge the blood shed by the hands of Jezebel, the blood of my servants, the prophets, and all the servants of the Lord. The whole house of Ahab will perish, and I will eliminate all of Ahab's males, both slave and free, in Israel. This young servant, the son of the prophet, gives the message that Elijah sent him with that will fulfill 1 Kings 19. And this anointing is the Lord's doing. He is the one who is anointing his chosen king to bring his right judgment on Ahab. With that said, servant flees, and Jehu wanders back to the commanders a bit dazed. It's a bit of a funny story, but let's keep reading on in verse 11. When Jehu came out to his master's servants, that's the commanders, they asked, is everything all right? Why did this crazy person come to you? And then he said to them, you know the sort, and they're ranting. But he replied, that's a lie, you've got to tell us. So Jehu said, he talked to me about this and that, and he said, this is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. Verse 13, each man quickly took off his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horn and they proclaimed, Jehu's king. Now, the king at that time was Joram, who was the son of Ahab. The king of Judah even at the time was Ahaziah, who in chapter 8, walked in the way of Ahab, did evil in the Lord's sight like the house of Ahab, because... He was Ahab's son-in-law. Ahab, Ahab, Ahab. These guys are in the firing lines of Jehu who is bringing the Lord's judgment. 
And the following chapters are story after story of graphic judgment on the house of God. Of, um, oh, sorry. Graphic judgment of God on the house of Ahab as Jehu goes about doing what he has been anointed for. His first action is killing both those kings. The king of Israel, Joram, son of Ahab, and kills Ahaziah, king of Judah, Ahab's son-in-law. The next thing that Ahab does... Sorry, that... (laughs) Sorry. The next is Jezebel, Ahab's widow, uh, who's thrown out of a high window by her own servants at the call of Jehu, and they left her to be eaten by the dogs. That's very graphic. There's another story of 70 sons of Ahab in a fortified city seeking refuge, but they're all beheaded by that city and given and presented to Jehu. Jehu lures out all the servants of, and prophets of Baal to the temple of Baal so he can slaughter them all. And look at verse 26 of chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 26. They brought out the pillars of the temple of Baal and burned them. And tore down the pillar of Baal. Then they tore down the temple of Baal and made it a latrine, which it is to this day. He has done what the Lord commanded and desired, judgment upon judgment upon judgment, all on the house of Ahab. So as we try and bring it all together and we take a step back and we look at these two stories next to each other, We should see, not just know how good it is to obey God, but see how good it is to obey God. And we should see, not just know how dreadful judgment is, but see how dreadful judgment is. But for us here today, how is it actually wonderful to obey God? Struggling against sin can feel so draining at times. Standing opposed to what the world is doing is like standing opposing a flood. Being mocked can bring real tears. Life obeying God is not easy. But the man of God, the man of God, Jesus Christ, to obey him is to be blessed. Mark 1.15 says this. Jesus commands people, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe this wonderful news, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Turn to this true man of God who took away the eternal curse of your sin on himself that you may escape eternal judgment. Not just seven years, not just 2,555 days, eternal. And this same man of God is gracious to us, not just to give us life, but eternal life. Clothed in his righteousness so that we can be with this gracious God, that is where true healing from suffering is. So it is so wonderful when anyone repents and believes the good news. It is so wonderful when anyone obeys the man of God. And once you've done that, it's still wonderful to obey God. Doing good works that he's planned for us to do is a loving response to God being gracious towards us. It's truly a blessing to know this gracious God. A wise Christian encouraged his congregation once with these words. The Savior can make our hearts leap for joy by reassuring us that we are written on his palms that are pierced and that we shall be with him where he is. 
when it's all said and done, the eternal weight of glory is what you will know. The eternal glory of the man of God is what you will know so much more than any suffering this life holds. Yet this man of God, the risen Lord Jesus, is also God's anointed king. And God has anointed his king and has given him the task to bring the judgment of God. Acts 17 says this, He commands all people everywhere to repent. That in and of itself is a blessing. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. We have seen in 2 Kings 8, 9, and 10 the small measurement of the just punishment of sin. And no one should feel comfortable reading it. But there will come a day when Jesus, who has shown God's grace, will come as the king to bring judgment. The full judgment of God. The true horror of sin will be clearly seen on that day, and the justice of God will be praised. Which leaves us with grace or judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, please may you give us hearts that sing about your grace. Let our conversations and efforts to love be reflections of it. And Lord, may we know the depths of the grace that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. May we see the depths of our sin and its just punishment. And may we see the wonderful depths of what Jesus did in taking our sin and curse on himself on that cross. In Jesus' holy and awesome name we pray.